0: Welcome to Side Hustle. Hello, everyone. This is Eli. And this is Eric. And this is Side Hustle, where we are talking a little bit more explicitly about the game design intentions we have for the uh, research that we're doing as
1: part of Janghu Hustle. Yeah, we wanted to break this out and talk about our specific aims. So this is episode two of Side Hustle, and we're just going to dig into Voice and tone this time, and kind of talk about what we're interested in exploring, what those concepts are, and how we want to apply them to the game that Eli and I are going to make.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, this is sort of inspired by some stuff from last time. Uh, First of all, the one real important nugget that we took from our first side hustle episode was answering question number one of the big three, which is, What is your game about? And uh, this game, which we have yet to name, is an equal expression of wuxia action and wuxia melodrama while keeping a strong pace.
1: Those are all three important ingredients for us. Yeah, I'm still really liking that sentence, too. I think it it's summing up what we want. It's keeping it distinct from some of the other like, wuxia projects that are out there right now. So I'm I'm happy that it's giving us a direction that is... That is sort of in line with some things that are out there, but also gives us our own workspace.
0: Yeah, you know, I think uh, Feng Shui is maybe the most obvious example of a game that really captures the action part of a kung fu movie. And uh, one of the things that we mentioned on the most recent episode of Jianghu Hustle was Lowell Francis's Hearts of Wu Lin, which I think is a really good example of that melodrama angle of Wuxia. But um, I don't know that there are a whole lot of games out there that are trying to do both and trying to balance those against each other. So uh, I think, yeah, like you said, I'm pretty excited about the sentence even a couple
1: months later. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So voice and tone. So what are we, what are we talking about? We've got two concepts here that we're, that we're going for. So uh, voice and tone. And I see those as separate, but do you want to kind of break down what you meant when you put those in the notes?
0: Yeah, I think I view them as separate too. And I think both of them are uh, interrelated, even if they're not identical, you know. So voice is going to be the uh, writing style that we use to communicate with the reader and the players and that sort of thing. Uh, Whereas tone is going to be more about the kind of stories that we want to provide space for, in the game uh so whereas voice would be something like you know you're going to write this like a technical manual or you're going to write this like a novel or something like that Uh, and tone is this is going to be a funny read or this is going to be kind of a a grandiose read or something like that
1: well and i actually think of tone slightly differently i totally agree with you on voice that it's how we present the actual text to the reader and whether that has kind of its own character Mm mm-hmm and tone, I think, is, like you said, it is part of voice. So that that voice that we have is communicating tone. But the tone, I think, that I am also interested in is how do we communicate the style of game, the tone and tenor of gameplay? So how do we communicate that to not just the reader, but also make that tone transmittable to players? Because... We know that probably one person's going to read the book and then have to have to transmit that to the players using only play aids and whatever kind of tone and voice we can instruct the facilitator or whatever we have uh, who's going to organize the game for them to be able to uh, whatever tools we give them to be able to communicate that tone to the players
0: does that make any sense yeah so voice is more about the style of writing and tone is more about the
1: is more about the style of play that we want to see and they're related because voice is how we tell people what the tone is but there's also another level of tone that is tone itself has to be communicated to people that aren't necessarily going to interact specifically with the voice of the text except in very small Portions, like i said in player aids or that sort of thing
0: yeah so what you're saying then is uh voice is the tool that we will use to communicate with the reader whereas tone is something that the reader can impart to the rest
1: of the players right right and we need to make sure that one facilitates the other but that we're honestly so the thing about voice that I have an issue with, uh, and we might as well just get it right out there, is that voice is kind of dangerous. Like, it's kind of a dangerous thing to use, especially in something that is partly instructional. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted, we haven't really talked about this, so I just kind of want to get this out there. I am all for having a voice for the text, but the more character that your voice has, the less accessible it can be to someone who's not recognizing what you're doing, someone who's not already primed to to understand that. Like, I'll bring up Apocalypse World right now. The original Apocalypse World ha- it has one of the most distinct voices that I've read in a role-playing game. Like, you read this and you're like, oh, this person is talking directly to me, and they are doing it in a character of someone from the Apocalypse World but also a role playing game instructional and there are some people that they read that and they said I get it I get what this is trying to tell me this is free in my mind and I'm going to play in this new style and I've got this this tone that it's communicating I'm going to bring that to the table other people just bounced right off of it there were they said I don't know why there's so many swear words in this I don't know what this conversational style is getting in the way of me being able to parse these new ideas that are coming at me. And it's a real struggle, uh, especially that I think the first edition, some people really struggled with it. So I think voice is one of those things that is super useful, but you are playing with fire to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, it's important to... uh... Uh, use a little bit of a light hand. It sounds like with voice, because it's possible to go overboard and even
1: alienate some of the people you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. Or you won't reach people that you might've reached otherwise. Um, But I think, I think partly in apocalypse world, that was part of the plan was it it's designed to have a, a fervent core of people that get it. And the voice is part of that. And I don't know that we necessarily need to go that far that we're willing to risk alienating a bunch of people so that we can have a like a small core, but maybe we are, I mean, we'll, we'll have to kind of play around with it, but I think that voice voice is really interesting. Cause I do, I have read games that were just unreadable because of their voice uh, or just very difficult to parse. So there's a, a, a game designer. Her name is uh, Jenna Moran and she did uh, nobilis and Chubo's marvelous wish granting engine and she has a very particular voice that's her own that comes through the writing style. And for me, I both like respond to it as writing, but it also impedes my ability to learn how this game works, especially because they tend to be very like non-standard games. Okay. So her writing style maybe obfuscates some of the rules. Yes, it absolutely obfuscates the the way that the rules are intended to be used. Um, so, okay. so I really like voice in my role playing games, but I'm also like, Ooh, I have some concerns, right? Sure. Well, and you know, so I don't know that
0: this is the opposite end of the spectrum, but whereas on one end you've got apocalypse world and they're all about the voice of the text and they're maybe a little alienating in that regard. I think closer to the other end of the spectrum, you've got stuff like all of the D and D books that are coming out right now. Volo's guide to monsters or, or whatever they are. And uh, those have notes in them that are in-character voices from characters in the world, but there's also a lot of pretty much standard RPG text writing uh,
1: that you find in there. Sure. So it's it's you've got sort of flash fiction mixed in with just the standard more technical writing. Is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, and I know that the uh, the hallmark of an actual page or three of In text fiction has kind of fell to the wayside for some valid reasons, I think. But this is maybe the modern day equivalent of that where we're still seeing, you know, side notes or something that are that are notes from within the world. And I think for the people who like to read role-playing books, it's really a nice perk for them to be able to not only pick up a book that maybe looks like it's an artifact from the game world, but also when they're reading it to be like, oh, look, it's not just that this is my imagination that I'm playing around in this world. This is advice from someone in the world and it's speaking right to me. I think that can be really helpful for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Dresden Files role-playing game was, there's actually sort of like a meta narrative that went around it that that the game was written by one of the characters from the novels and and so there was it was mostly just like regular game text but it had little like sticky notes stuck in it from the various characters making comments or like it was redlined like you can't put this in here or various things and that was that's a really fun way of doing it but it didn't get in the way of communicating the actual rules of the game now we could go all the way to the other end of a voice and have no voice, right? But I don't think that that's really useful because nobody wants to read that. That's the game that reads like like stereo instructions.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I mean, unless it's an RPG about building a stereo, I don't think there's necessarily any place for that. Wait,
1: are we in the wrong line?
0: Oh man! Okay, everybody, we are here announcing the launch of our new podcast. Uh, it's called Stereo Hustle. Uh, it's going to be great.
1: So, yeah. So, so we don't quite know what the voice is right now, I think, because right now, like the, the game is just sort of nascent, but I wanted to get some of my questions and concerns out about voice because I think it's dangerous sometimes.
0: Absolutely. And I think aside from just an engagement level, uh, there's also a danger for us specifically in an appropriation uh, kind of way for the, for the voice of this book. And I know that you and I have talked about this off the air as well, but we both believe that it's important to have a sensitivity reader or to have some real solid representation in the book throughout uh, to kind of make sure that we don't appropriate in the course of doing this thing.
1: Or we don't fall onto some sort of stereotype. In our voice. Right. Uh, and I think yeah. that's that's a thing that especially when I'm like communicating even the idea of our podcast to other people mm-hmm. that I have to be like, yes, that but not that. And, yeah. uh, you know, we have to make sure that there are tropes and things and stereotypes that we are not falling into because we are studying uh largely Chinese storytelling. So it's like there's there's certain there's certain lines that we need to we need to definitely tow, or at least have someone else look at and find out whether or not we messed up.
0: I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Very important to do that. And I I just wanted to mention that in a different kind of danger uh, for the project that we have before us, you know? So go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we've got some uh, game examples that we've amassed that have an example of a strong voice or tone that I think would be useful to review so that we can come closer to zeroing in on the type of voice and tone that we would like to use in our own game.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. And then we can talk about tone, like how these games use voice and tone and like some of the things that are, uh, especially tone, communicating tone, I think is very, um, it's very challenging. And it's, some of these games have done it really well. So let's, uh, let's step through these and, and talk about kind of what they do and how they work. Absolutely. So uh,
0: the first one that I have on the list is Mistrobed Gate. Uh, It's an actual Wuxia RPG, uh, so it's pretty relevant to what we're doing. And uh, I believe it's a
1: free game. Is that right? I think it is free or it is pretty cheap. I I would have to look again. I know I I picked up my copy for free, and I think I did so legitimately.
0: But yeah, it's an interesting book because uh, I I don't think the book necessarily has a voice, but the mechanics of the game create a really strong atmosphere. Uh, It recommends that you cook authentically Asian food and it it tells you that you need to have a knife on the tabletop because whenever violence is visited upon your character, you actually stab your character sheet with this knife. And that's a really interesting mechanical consideration for a game
1: yeah i mean it really does communicate because uh mistrobe gate is specifically about tragic wuxia stories so it's all of this having the rich meal and then having the knife out and physically stabbing character sheets and passing the knife around and that sort of thing creates this this ritual at the table that really informs the tone of the play because nobody's gonna screw around when there's a knife at the table well, hopefully not. If they are, you probably shouldn't play that game right. with them. <laughs> yeah, it's probably true, uh, but it definitely is. I mean, I think, I think honestly, most of that game, uh, most of that text is about setting tone. The actual mechanics of the game are only a few pages, and the rest of it is like here is recipes, here is music, here is movies, and and then the knife is like an integral part of the mechanics. So that game is is has very strong like tone communication that will come through.
0: Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's really valuable stuff, too. Uh, it makes me think of uh, Confucian Analect, which I think is becoming a bit of mine at this point. I think so, um, yep. But in the Analects, there's one entry in particular that's talking about a ritual drinking vessel, which is called a ku, K-U. And um, Confucius is commenting about this ku, and, and he says this this coup is so much more than just a coup. It's so much more than just the physical object that I hold in my hand. It's it's deeply tied to the ritual of of using it in a sacred space and and the meaning that's connected to that ritual and the community that is surrounding that ritual and partaking in that ritual. And so we look at this cup, and on the one hand, it's just earthenware. But on the other hand, it's a thing that means something important. And by the same token this knife, I think in the in the rules, they even say, you know, it can be a butter knife. It can be a fancy knife. It can be like a, a ceremonial dagger or something like that. But regardless of what it happens to be, you imbue a, a meaning into it in the course of gameplay because the game requires you to do that. And uh, that's one of the things that I personally love about that mechanic. I, I can see its shortcomings in a couple of ways, but I think that it highlights a part of Chinese culture that is really cool.
1: Yeah, I think uh, ritual is a really important thing. I think ritual ties us through to kind of the next item item on our list, uh, which is Swords Without Master, which is a highly ritualized game. Yes. The play itself, you only use one set of dice and who you pass them to, and when they get rolled, and when they get picked up, all has a significance that goes beyond just the rolling of dice that you would normally see in a game. And there are specific phrases and things that you can use in the game that have a a ritual effect within the game.
0: We even talked about one of them in the last episode. We talked about uh, making a demand, and there's a specific phrase you say, tell us how, show us how, Mm -hmm. uh, another character
1: does a thing. And that's a game that has a very strong voice. So it's a swords and sorcery game and it's written with that, like kind of purple prose of the really great uh, swords and sorcery novels. And it's very like bombastic language. Yeah. In the time between the sinking of Atlantis, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's good stuff. It's, it's excellent, but it has, uh, has some other things that set tone as part of play that I think are also really clever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean the tone mechanic first and foremost the tone so the tone mechanic is is right there out in the open but I think even before you engage with the tone mechanic you need to come up with what's called an idolon So an Eidolon is something from our world that has a connection with your character so it can be a picture, a drink, a song. I played with a guy who used he had a, he literally had a musical instrument with him at the He literally had a mandolin. And uh, he played it as part of his character. It's It was pretty, pretty amazing. But when I've run it at conventions, I usually just have pictures and just go here. Uh, use this picture to develop an idea about your character. And then if I'm the, the over player, which is sort of the game master of the thing, I will also have an image that is sort of my starting place for the adventure that they're going to go on. And I say, like, look, here's this here's these great cyclopean architectures that you're going to be exploring, uh, you know, or these, these insane psychedelic vistas that we're going to be wandering through. And then everyone else has their characters and they've built up things off of their Eidolons. So already right then, before we've engaged any of the, the dice mechanics of the game, we're engaging in tone setting for the game. And I think, like, if anything... Like, that's the part that I just want to, like, wrap my arms around and steal for our game, is that, like, how do we get that tone set up right away so that players are Already bought in and know what they're in for when we start.
0: Right. The thing that I really like about that mechanic is that sword and sorcery is such a broad, uh, all-encompassing kind of genre that a person could conceivably provide just about anything, and and it would be appropriate for the setting, uh, especially because this mechanic explicitly builds the setting collaboratively. It's an opportunity for every player to have more or less equal input into the starting condition of the game. Uh, I think, obviously, our game is a little more constrained than that. I think Wuxia is broad, but not as broad as Sword and Sorcery. Maybe it would be better to have a little more guidance than Swords Without Master provides in that regard, but certainly... Having the opportunity for some shared world building at the beginning of the game to help establish
1: not just the setting but also the tone is really valuable. Sure, and a way to root your character to a thing that you have a relationship with in the real world creates uh, creates that connection that you can. If you have trouble with your character, you can always fall back on it. If you're like, oh man, my idol on for my Swords of the Master character is this really awesome prog rock song, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what my character would do, and I'm like, oh, but what what's part of that song that i really like i love the bridge when it like just totally goes nuts and you're like maybe i should totally go nuts right now it's such a great way of connecting you to your character in a way especially because swords not is often played like with a third person stance i said you say that like my character or the name of your character goes and does this because it's it's much more of a like a short story building game more than it is like I'm going to interact with you personally kind of game
0: yeah it's much more about the meta narrative i think than the role play
1: i agree yeah and you know i mean for what
0: it's worth Swords that Master, while it's a really amazing game and it is really wonderful for the tone and the voice even of Sword and Sorcery, it is over the top in its voice. It is on purpose, balls to the wall in terms of telling you, I am speaking with a Sword and Sorcery voice. Like I said earlier, that's something that we need to be careful of as we're writing this story or as we're writing this game, because we don't want to fall into a a hole where we are being over the top about a culture that is not our own.
1: Right. And the other thing is that specifically with Swords of that Master is because the language is so, it's so evocative and it's, it has such a strong voice that when I went to run this game and to teach this game to other people, I actually had to dig the mechanics out of that language and rewrite it in my own words. And so like, that is a, that's a hazard. Like, if you can't expect that kind of effort from everybody, I think Swords Without Master is a game that is worth it, but I had to go and put in the work to like make the system accessible to me without having to wade through the voice. I've never actually
0: ran Swords Without Master myself, but I've read it enough times to understand that if I were to run the game or if I were to be a player in the game, I would probably feel a little hesitant to break the narrative of the overplayer to ask a clarifying question or something because it is such a performance as you're reading this thing.
1: Yeah, I think that definitely can be can be an issue, but it is like so we talked about like voice and what some of the issues are Swords of that Master as much as I love that game, it's one of my favorites. It has that issue. Let's move on to a game that I think does, t- that does tone about as good as anything I've ever seen, and that's Fiasco.
0: Yeah, okay. This is one of those games that I'm still more or less totally unfamiliar with, so I'm excited to see what you have to say. Okay,
1: so for the setup for Fiasco, to, to give anybody who hasn't played a, an idea of what's going on, you start out with four pages, and there's a page of uh, Relationships, Drives, Locations, and Objects. And they are all. uh, There are thirty-six items on each page, so it's so you roll a bunch of d sixes at the beginning, and that constrains your choice. Your choices. You spend the dice. You go okay. Well, I'm going to pick the top level. The top level choice on relationships for, for the number one, and maybe that's family. And then you can somebody come by and define the rest of that relationship as twins. And that's the third option. They take a number three die and they select that option. But everybody's passing these these lists around. They each have thirty-six different things on them. And as you're going through and you are figuring out which one out of your constrained option of dice that you get to roll, you're looking through these lists and you're trying to decide which one of these some of some of these the the things on these lists are just completely out there you know or that you sort of choose them with relish because you're going to give it to someone else the thing that fiasco does it's called priming so each play set has sort of several story seeds kind of already baked into it already and then and then depending on what you choose it sort of mixes and and remasters these into your particular story but the great thing is is you're only going to get 24 choices or something like that, but you've read every single entry on all of those pages, even if you don't think that you did. So even though no one chose the whorehouse that Mama left you in the will as a location, we know that that's part of the tone of this particular playset. Cool. Yeah. And and it's it's a deliberate thing. I mean, I've heard Jason Morningstar talk about this, that this is a deliberate thing that we are, as we're, as we're building our little setting and we're making our characters interrelated and we're giving them things to fight over, you are being primed to play the type of game that this playset wants you to play. So if it's, uh, an urban crime thing like Fargo, or if it's, you know, one of the, the kind of the far out ones, the really good ones have a mix of Kind of like ordinary things and out there things that you're going to read over and, you know, you probably laugh over some of them, but not be able to pick it because you don't have the right dice. But all of that is still in your brain and it informs the way that you play. That's why like when fiasco really works, it really works because all of the players have been primed by reading all of these objects uh, and locations and various things. So Fiasco, I think, is just a masterclass in how to prime people.
0: It makes me think of old school style random generation tables, except instead of the game master being the one who is randomly generating the story or the setting or whatever, it's a communal activity. And that's useful not only because, like you said, everybody gets to absorb all of the options on the table, but also because if you're doing it communally, certainly at least one of the players at this table is going to be familiar with wuxia or kung fu movies or, or what have you. And for any player who isn't, that time when you get together and you create the the details of this potential list or out of this potential list, that one player who's not familiar with the genre We'll get a lot of exposure to it and come to understand how a story is told in this thing. You see something similar with Apocalypse World style playbooks where characters get experience points for taking certain kinds of actions or they have uh, different special abilities or whatever that are related to their character's concept, you know, their playbook's concept. But this is something that happens beforehand and it's explicitly about
1: setting up the playground that you'll be playing on. Right. And so some Powered by the Apocalypse games have taken this and they'll have you like answer a bunch of questions or uh, pick off of, of pick lists to answer the questions. So it creates a sort of a constrained but dynamic space to play in. There was a game. Oh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever going to come out, but there was a, um, Hearts of Steel. I think it's a Powered by the Apocalypse game about, um, like anime pilots and it had this way of generating the situation by asking a bunch of questions and then constraining your choices and how you as the table answered those questions and then you took all of those answers and then you brainstormed how they all fit together it would tell you like what your what your sci-fi situation was that you had created and i think something like that it's the combination of constraint and a little bit of priming you with the material that you need in order to play that's so powerful and i think that's a thing that we could definitely use in this game, especially to help people out who aren't as familiar with Wushaw stories.
0: Absolutely. And it's a nice little Easter egg for people who are familiar. You know, uh, they, they're like, oh,
1: man, the treacherous student. OK, yeah, I know what that is, even if we're not going to use it. Right. If we if we put it like a like a three section staff and you're like, oh, uh, I know what that is. That's a 36 chamber reference right there. But it's enough to get someone who isn't familiar with it, like excited about like the story that they're about to tell.
0: I agree. No, I think that's a great thing to add to the to the the design apparatus. I guess you'd say. Let's talk about this code name Lincoln Green project. Yes. Yeah. So this is the second uh, game from Epidia Ravichal that we are discussing on this episode. So thanks, Ep. You're awesome. But yeah, so Lincoln Green is a game that he's developing right now. Uh, It's yet to be released, but he's started doing some playtesting and it's inspired by the Robin Hood mythos. I've seen him posting or tweeting out little uh, teasers and things like that for a while about his research, but a few weeks ago, I finally saw him post some pictures from a playtest, and the I guess you'd call them playbooks or something that he's created for this game are amazing. On the front, it says Lincoln Green, and then it has the outlaw's oath right there. So right away, you know the oath that all of these merry men swear before they go off and, and engage in their outlawry. It's, you know, seven or eight lines that tell you we do this for this reason and this for this reason, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you open up the book, there's a place where you can record your character information. But there's also like, here are the rules. If you want to engage in this part of the oath, this is how you do that. If you want to engage in this part, that's how you do this. And it's only one or two lines for each thing. It's such a cool, immersive tool to help someone
1: navigate not only their character, but the game as a whole. Yeah, and... and- picking those, those small sentences, right? Cause presumably all the players are going to see is their their little awesome character sheet. You can't, you can't be trusted that they're going to have read the full text of the game before they sit down at the table. So the more evocative that those sentences can be and the way that you communicate that to your players, that's the thing. I mean, I think that's taking, so the, those apocalypse world style playbooks and then like really just elevating them up and going like, here is not only does the game master have an agenda, but you also have agenda and principles and that's your. That's your code. That's your outlaw code. Here's how you specifically interact with that, but in really dynamic language that draws you in. Picking picking those words takes so long. It's so like, I I mean, we, we talk about Blades in the Dark a lot, but the names of the skills that are in that game it changed wildly from like the first iteration through when the game was done i think john was tweaking those all the way up into the last minute
0: i listened to a, an interview between john and uh, adam coble uh, and it was all about how to hack blades in the dark and john said that you can hack the game without interacting with the mechanics at all simply by changing the action ratings that are available to you a tune Uh, prowl, sway, all of these things are options that carry a lot of flavor. And just by changing the nature of those, even by not changing the things that they point to, but just changing the words themselves, you can create a very different kind of game.
1: One of the ones that I was really sad to see gone was he had one that was called murder. And I was like, oh, what what a great verb. In our game, ours are going to be different. They're going to be tied to responsibility and they're going to be tied to duty and they're going to be tied to honor and, you know, all of those things. And like, those are the words that we're going to have to find to communicate that tone to the players.
0: Yeah, and you know, a little behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, One of the things that I've been working on, and I I tweeted this uh, a little while ago, I have studied Confucius, and I I just recently read through uh, the Tao Te Ching. And the translations that I use for those are by these two guys. uh, Actually, the Confucius is Rosemont and Ames, and uh, the the Tao Te Ching is Hall and Ames. But these are Chinese cultural scholars who have... Put their entire lifetimes into understanding the Chinese language and its historical context in these sacred texts. Anyway, yeah, and like, so one of the words that is one of these attributes that I'm brainstorming right now, it's Yi, Yi, I. And it's often translated as propriety or righteousness or justice or a lot of things that really mean wildly different things. And the task of trying to find these. Chinese cultural concepts and to give them a context in our Western understanding is going to be such a task for us.
1: Yeah, I it because it's like we almost need like a word cloud. And that's what's represented by this, this thing. And then we also have to balance like, well, we could just use the Chinese words. But are we just like appropriating without putting like the level of research that like these people that have worked on these projects have put in? You know, and, and and so it's a real like, like we, we not only have a struggle to find the right word, but to also use those words responsibly.
0: Talking about this game and the balance of either making things clear through the course of a lot of words or just using the Chinese concept and letting that speak for itself. There's actually a Confucian Analect that's really relevant to this. So this is my second and final one for the episode. I promise it's in book two. It's Analect 15 and it follows thus. The master said, learning without due reflection leads to perplexity. Reflection without learning leads to perilous circumstances. This is maybe a little inscrutable, uh, but essentially learning and reflecting are two of the core projects of Confucianism. You want to learn everything that you can. And then once you've learned it, you need to reflect on it. You need to understand it and put it in context. If we were to put out a bunch of words about the Chinese concept of Yi, and what it means, that would be an opportunity for someone to both learn and reflect. Whereas if we're just going to put out the Chinese concept of Yi and then not really bother to translate it at all, that is either going to be learning without reflection or reflection without learning. You're either going to learn this Chinese word and you're not going to think about what it means, or you're going to think about this Chinese word and not have access to what it means at all. So I think in the same way that this particular analect is pretty succinct, uh, it has some densely packed meaning bottled up in there. I think we also need to find a succinct way to communicate just enough of these concepts that it allows a person to go on and consider what those concepts really mean. I think the project of going off on your own and reflecting
1: on what you've read is going to be valuable for us as we go about this game. That's great. I don't think I, don't think I have anything more to add to that. So why don't we wrap up this episode of Side Hustle and we can go and reflect on voice and tone And perhaps learn a thing or two.
0: I agree, yes. This is good wisdom. And uh, Confucius, I think, would uh, probably crack some sort of sarcastic comment at us, but
1: that's sort of his style. So it's probably a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or at his website, MythicGazetteer.com. And you can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, DogPoweredVehicle.com. Or you can reach both of us at Junghu Hustle on Twitter, Junghu Hustle at gmail.com for email, and on the Misdirected Mark website. This show is a proud member of the Misdirected Mark network.